0: you're listening to The Booking Club, the podcast that brings you today's leading authors and commentators from a table at their favorite places to eat and drink. I'm your host, Jack Aldane. On this episode, I'm going to be speaking to Adrian Buller, author of The Value of a Whale on the Illusions of Green Capitalism. Adrian, why are we at Big Joe? <laughs>
1: why are we at Big Joe? Yeah
0: why did you choose Big Joe? <laughs>
1: uh, I'll be honest with you I live right around the corner so it was very convenient for me um, and basically I'm a big fan of their uh, other restaurants. Uh, I've actually never tried this one.
0: I didn't know that there were other restaurants. Yes, this is uh, we're in Hornsie yeah. Road in North London. Yeah. Right.
1: Finsbury Park. But it's a couple of guys as far as I understand it who have a a handful of restaurants so there's one in stoke newington called primer it's very very good kind of fancy dinner spot right yeah. right
0: okay well i was just telling you about uh, the booking club's events um, there is one coming up on the 20th of november in stoke yeah. newington where we're going to be having the guardian cartoonist martin Rousen talking about a book that he is currently crowdfunding with the independent publishers unbound
1: Great. so i thought
0: i would sneak that in at the top we are here to talk about the value of a whale Thank you very much. Cappuccinos have just arrived. Thank you. <laughs> I, I should uh, come clean and say that as a journalist, a few years back, I worked for a trade publication that covered the world of impact investment. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, as a financial journalist, I thought I had finally found an enlightened niche in the finance world where financiers spoke about things that actually mattered and used their skills to address them. And while a great many people I met over those years did care about the future of the planet and did want to do some good, I soon learned that all of them were really searching for a way to do what they had always done. Mm. And that sustainability, deep down, meant to them the sustainability of incentives, Mm. the sustainability of reward, of global consumption, of growth. Climate change had presented an obstacle to that. Therefore, it was important to address climate change. (laughs) I suppose, to start off, what is the main thrust of the value of a whale?
1: It's it's a good question. Um, So the main thrust of the book is basically, I mean, I I think there is a lot of energy now being directed at engaging with the impact of the climate and nature crises on uh, the economy, particularly in the US and UK. And, you know, sustainable finance and impact investing are good examples of the way that those two things are kind of starting to bleed into each other. Um, But I think I wanted to understand a shift in mindset that I was seeing in sort of, the corporate sector or in finance, away from basically trying to obstruct climate policy or to not engage with it at all, and instead pivoting towards really wanting to kind of shape how the agenda towards, uh, you know, a decarbonized future advances and to really kind of, yeah, be leading the charge to make sure that the way that that process happens um, kind of serves the interests of business and to really shape that agenda. Um and I think that's an important thing uh, to try and understand. If you know you're someone who, like myself, is concerned about you know not only decarbonization in some kind of abstract sense, but in you know doing so in a way that doesn't kind of reproduce or worsen injustices and kind of inequalities in the economy. So. Um, Yeah, that's basically the main kind of themes that I explore.
0: And it seems like in the book, what you're saying is, is that actually in trying to solve this problem through the market, we are actually, in fact, making it worse. I mean, less than a decade ago, green finance was only vaguely a thing, right? But over the past few years, it's exploded in popularity. And with that momentum, it's produced a fair number of scandals giving rise to the term greenwashing, another term we'll get into. But of course... Before that, I think it's important for us to go back to the origins of green capitalism. When and by whom was it first imagined that global finance could tell a new story about itself as an engine for sustainability? Oh,
1: that's a good question. I'm not sure I can identify a very specific individual or firm that first kind of started to enact this. I think there was... A growing understanding um, as you've talked about there that you know the climate crisis did pose a really substantial risk to financial stability and the ability for financial firms to kind of uh, you know maintain consistent and, and growing returns and so needing to understand the risks that climate posed to finance and that's something that has been kind of yeah as you said growing over the past decade. Um and i think it's coincided with growing public awareness and concern over the climate crisis such that you know it was finally matched with quite an upswing in kind of demand on the part of Uh, you know, consumers for there to be options to kind of at least invest or kind of spend their money in ways that they felt aligned with their values. And so there was kind of a captive market there for financial firms who started to understand that, you know, this did pose a substantial risk to their business model and to, you know, their ability to operate and and be profitable, basically.
0: What was the inspiration behind the title of the book, The Story of the Whale?
1: So I uh, was lucky enough to grow up on the west coast of Canada. um, And so, you know, had a lot of very lucky experience as a kid where I got to see kind of whales in the wild but basically you know nature and environmentalism was just kind of bred in the bone a little bit um, and marine species have always really spoken to me um, and then I have always kind of followed new research and new studies into whales just because I find them fascinating and there's a wonderful book um, that inspires some of the kind of anecdotal uh, content in the opening chapter which is called... Um, Fathoms, and it's by Rebecca Giggs, and she talks about whales as a sentinel species for kind of the well-being of the environment as a whole and, and by extension for humanity. You know, the, the fate of whales, the way she describes it, is kind of intimately tied up with our own. They're a good, you know, kind of marker in nature of whether, you know, marine ecosystems are struggling or facing particular threats. Um, and I found that very compelling, but also that happens to coincide with Um, It was a couple of years back that this first was published, but the sort of study that I cite at the start of the book, which is a couple of researchers at the International Monetary Fund, um, thinking about how we should find a way to sort of put a price on nature so that we can protect it was their logic. And so they tried to arrive at a calculation that describes the value of a whale. And
0: if you Google it, it comes right up, doesn't it? It comes right up And what was the auction price? Uh,
1: Two million U.S. dollars about per whale, um, or one trillion for the global stock. I should say that's only great whales, so dolphins and porpoises, sorry, you're excluded. Um, but they, you know, they sorted that um, and arrived at that number based on combination of things like their contribution to ecotourism, so basically whale watching tours, um, but also their role in carbon sequestration. So whales, you know, per pounds, can absorb more carbon uh, than a tree over their lifetimes. Um, and, you know, I thought that that was a particularly kind of <laughs> jarring thing. Um, jarring example of the way that uh, our kind of economic structures and institutions um, and indeed policymakers kind of view uh, nature and the nature crises and you know that this is only something that can be saved and protected if we're able to arrive at a monetary value for that and I really wanted to challenge that kind of idea in the book.
0: What's that on your (laughs) arm?
1: Yes on my left forearm um, is a uh, hand tattoo of a blue whale um, they actually based the image on the cover off of ask. my tattoo <laughs> I was about to ask yeah, so he features uh, on the cover of the book I don't have a name for him actually I should have one
0: Big Joe <laughs> <laughs>
1: alright fine, Big Joe <laughs> happy birthday
0: So looking at the menu then, what takes your fancy? You said this is a place where you order, you tend to order lots of small things, right? Yes. What are we going for?
1: Classic, very trendy. Um, So I am a pickles fanatic, and I know that they make all of their bread and pickles and butter and stuff in-house, so I'm going to get a bunch of those. And then um, they have lovely pizza slices that we share, so we're just going to be sharing everything. Hope that's okay.
0: That's absolutely fine. And uh, are you vegetarian?
1: Uh, I am, although I sometimes flex into eating fish when necessary. So we may have to dabble in that. Today. Dabble
0: in fried anchovies. Yeah, okay. potentially, yeah. <laughs> I wonder what the value of an anchovy is. <laughs> so how did greenwashing start? and And have regulators had any real success in policing it? Yeah,
1: so I think I'm going to zoom out a little bit to start answering that question, which is, you know, we talked a little bit about how this has been... Um, particularly in green finance or, you know, corporations portraying themselves in sustainable uh, light. You know, that is something that comes, I think, from two places. One of which is, I think, some people really would like to find a way to make their businesses more sustainable. Um, I think some financial firms aren't stupid and they know that they need to address climate risk if they want to be sort of successful in the long term. But I think a lot of it is this kind of transition from what used to be a project of, like, very successful kind of more overt denialism or obstruction of climate legislation and of climate policy uh, on the part of big corporates but also on the part of financial firms Um, and I think the green capitalism that I describe in the book this kind of phenomenon is a transition away from that recognizing that that's no longer a winning strategy um, and that as I kind of mentioned before that kind of Managing the transition in the interest of business is now the new project and making sure it does as little kind of to disrupt their their interests and the systems that they benefit from as possible. So I think, you know, Greenwash to me is a natural extension of that, right? If, if what you're interested in isn't really addressing the climate crisis, but in making sure that the global response to it doesn't kind of harm your interests, then that's sort of a natural extension, right? You can kind of market yourself as green without really having to do all that much to change your behavior. Um, Greenwash has been a very big problem, particularly in sustainable finance. There are a lot of very silly examples. Um, In my own research in the past, you know, I looked into some climate-themed funds that were explicitly labeled as, you know, fossil fuels free. Uh, and they had loads of companies investing in fossil fuels. So, you know, it's, it's often quite kind of naked and, and um, overt like that. But to me, it's actually not, not the biggest problem, I think, um, that sustainable finance is facing. And, and we can unpack that a bit because it's a big concept. But I think, you know, greenwash is a problem for sure. But it's kind of a surface level problem compared with my other kind of concerns about the kind of boom in sustainable finance.
0: In front of us here are the pickled vegetables, the olives, and the home-baked bread with butter. So uh, let's pause for a moment to enjoy that, and then we'll continue. <laughs> so you mentioned there your concerns that go beyond greenwashing.
1: Yeah. So greenwash is definitely a problem, and you know I do think that most people would be, you know, disappointed to find out that you know they're trying to do something good, and that you know companies are kind (laughs) of preventing them from doing that or kind of misleading. Um, But for me, I think what concerns me about um, the kind of sustainable finance or the ESG, so that's environmental social governance investing, about the boom in that, is that the kind of mechanics of the way that most people are able to engage with the investment system and, and with a lot of what happens in the investment system and in ESG in particular basically mean that it's not really I think shifting capital and shifting investment and financial flows in the way that people think it is so I, I worry that what it does is basically take what I do think is you know, a big upswing in public concern over the climate crisis I think the boom in ESG does reflect you know, a change in consumer perception and in the way that people want to use their money but I think what it does is kind of channel it into things that aren't altogether very useful uh, and basically in the process it kind of um, diffuses that energy and, and gives the veneer that something is changing and happening when really it isn't. Um, and basically, you know, I can take—I'll um, uh, take a specific fund as an example. So, basically, Vanguard, one of the biggest U.S.-based asset management firms, um, it has a kind of flagship U.S. Um, ESG fund that basically is supposed to invest according to sort of sustainable um, and socially beneficial criteria. Um, so what it's done is taken, you know, a mainstream index that has a list of loads of corporations um, that you would see in, in your average kind of portfolio. It's screened for certain companies it deems bad, like, you know, maybe Exxon or, or Chevron. And that's fine. <laughs> um, but there's this implicit assumption, I think, that just because you've pulled your money out of fossil fuels, that means it's going uh, into uh, into something that's good and that's actually kind of contributing to bringing about that greener future that people want to see um, when in reality that fund basically is just like overwhelmingly invested in you know Facebook Google Amazon um, financial firms big Pharma you know those are the big stocks that you're seeing that um, comprise the vast majority of that portfolio and so while you've removed a couple of you know fossil fuel firms, Um, what you're left with is hardly kind of a list of companies that most people would associate with, you know, driving the transition to a decarbonized future. And I should say, you know, that's not a bug. That's not unique to that fund. That is absolutely a feature of the kind of ESG and sort of um, exposure-based approach to sustainable finance, which, you know, that's a bit jargony, but that just describes, um, you know, your adjusting your portfolio and its exposure to harmful things based on the risks that those pose to your portfolio, as opposed to what your portfolio does in terms of kind of driving those risks.
0: I suppose there are some investors who buy stocks in uh, Facebook and you know Microsoft and others that don't produce oil, and they call that a green investment. Others buy stocks in brown assets, right? And, and they purposely go after the mining and shipping companies in order to push them to turn... <laughs> it all around are both just as bad as each other
1: i guess maybe bad is the wrong word i think you know um i would say that yeah you know just kind of moving all of your money into big tech and big pharma and big financial firms when it comes to the climate you know does does very little of anything um the other popular kind of approach to this that you mentioned there is the kind of voting and engagement approach. So, you know, there are lots of firms that will use their shareholding positions to vote at corporate annual general meetings and try and um, kind of push companies to change their behavior. I would say that while I think that's um, a well-intentioned undertaking, I think it's, you know, been very slow to deliver big change. You know, it's pretty difficult to use your position to get a shell or a chevron to just stop producing fossil fuels it's not really something that's ever going to happen there Um, and a lot of the wins that we have seen from that are based around disclosure so instead of getting companies to actually change their business plans in a really material way um, the wins you have are that they'll disclose what they're doing and disclose the bad things they're doing but not necessarily change them and that again comes down to the fact that this is you know, if we're doing it through the financial system, this is always going to be an approach based on financial risk. And disclosure is, again, a way that investors perceive that they can sort of minimize risk because they've got you know much more complete information about a company and its plans. Um, and that's kind of why I think we've seen a lot of that be the focus of, of engagement. And there are people trying to do really good work, but the other issue is that you know we have, and I talk about this a lot in the book, is that we have an investment system that kind of makes those changes almost structurally impossible um, because you've got, you know, three or four big U.S. kind of titans of investment. So your BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, Fidelity that, you know, have almost effective veto power at a lot of these companies because their relative uh, shareholding is so big compared to everybody else. And you know compared to a lot of the very earnest investors trying to win shareholder votes you know this is a big block that's really hard to move and that you know has a lot less interest in some of the more radical proposals that people put forward so if you're up against that massive stake it's often you know impossible to win unless you get them on board and that happens relatively infrequently <laughs>
0: Some really delicious, delicate, light bites there. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I must say, I was really impressed with the pizza. Pizza
1: frita. Pizza I think frita. It's yeah, really yeah. enjoyed
0: that. The olives are delicious. We still got some of those, and uh, the green salad was perfect. Everything's so fresh.
1: Yeah, it was lovely.
0: The coronavirus pandemic showed us quite clearly that, for all humanity's supposed mastery, when an airborne virus spread, there was very little we could do to prevent it. Pretty much upending our lives. Yeah, there seems to be this extra thick layer of abstraction to climate change that prevents people from sensing that this is something that they can do anything about.
1: Yeah, it's been you know kind of wild to see how little media coverage there's been, for example, of the kind of extreme floods in, in Pakistan. Um, I think that's something that we definitely need to do better at, but at the same time, you don't want to kind of immobilize people um, and make them feel as though it's no, kind of a immobilize. foregone exactly. Yeah, exactly you know you don't want to create so much fear that people feel like it's a foregone conclusion um, but at the same time you know one of the things that I think we do quite badly is we, we talk about climate in terms of really really long term targets as if 2050 or 2100 are you know the only years at which what we've done begins to matter and obviously that's you know very <laughs> doesn't really <laughs> generate a lot of energy for rapid urgent action Um Yeah, I think, so, one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of, um, you know, radical uncertainty. Um, And basically what that describes is, you know, and this describes a lot of what's happening with the climate and nature crises is our knowledge is so limited that we, we don't even know... What the unknowns are, so everything is kind of questions of you know we know there are risks, but we don't even know how to understand what there's going to be, um, and when that's the case, you know the best approach that we should be taking, and this applies again to you know coronavirus is that we know that these are possibilities, and we know that there are possibilities that. Could be catastrophic, <laughs> um, or at least you know hugely harmful to, to human well being and and you know thriving ecosystems and and all the rest. Um, and so the best thing you can do is you know apply a precautionary principle, right, which is to say that you know what can we do within our power to prevent the risk of you know catastrophe, even if we don't know when or or how that's going to play out.
0: It's a tall order what you're describing, uh, preparing for radical uncertainty. And I mean, could it really be? Democratic?
1: It's a difficult question. I think one thing that we definitely learned from COVID, right, is that, you know, the idea that pandemics are coming down the line, you know, this was not beyond the wit of man. You know, we used to have kind of councils in the UK that were set up to try and plan for, you know, the inevitability of a pandemic and to be prepared um, for the best kind of response to that. And we stopped financing or funding those programs rather and kind of stopped trying to be prepared and I think the the results of that lack of preparedness were quite obvious in the often contradictory kind of measures that we took in response to the outbreak Um, and so I think you know that could be a really valuable learning moment to kind of communicate to people that even though it might seem silly you know to be preparing this way for extreme events we've just seen the kind of directly negative impact of failing to do so when it comes to COVID. Um, and maybe that's a teachable moment. I try to be optimistic at times. Um, but yeah, it is also a tall order, right? Because, you know, people have just experienced a massive kind of infringement on their individual liberties in response to the pandemic. And that for some people was totally fine. And a lot of people just kind of stepped up to, to lean into that and to, you know, do their duty as it was understood. But, you know, that was obviously very... Politically divisive, as you said, and you know that will probably be the case with a lot of responses to extreme events um, that come out of the climate crisis.
0: It seems to be certainly in the context of net zero, but you're not the biggest fan of the net zero target, are you?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think net zero does a lot of heavy lifting for people that want to do as much as possible to like avoid reducing emissions in the near term.
0: What's wrong with it? What is uh, inherently the flaw of gunning for this target?
1: So net zero, right, describes the net emissions that we're producing. So, you know, the amount that's going out into the atmosphere, but the amount that we're also drawing down. And those should kind of cancel each other out at a global level is is how net zero is meant to work. What's happened is, one, by combining those two, you know, that's, I, I should say, that's in terms of like purely a technical sense. That's a necessity. We're never going to stop emitting all carbon and reach a fully zero carbon state. That's not even how you know natural systems work. However, um, I think what it does is kind of obscure how much of that um, transition needs to be eliminating basically all of our emissions of fossil fuels wherever possible, and then relying on carbon drawdowns like you know reforestation or other technologies to just kind of eliminate the last kind of what's called residual emissions that we just can't get rid of. And what happens instead is that by combining both the like carbon removal um, sort of accounting with the uh, sort of emissions removal accounting, if that makes sense, so the kind of offsets versus the actual emissions accounting, it allows a lot of people to fiddle with the numbers, right, and say we'll just keep emitting and we'll just plant. <laughs> an unreasonable number of trees to kind of offset that. And that particularly applies when it's kind of scaled down in the way that it has been to the kind of individual company level. So there are loads of financial firms and corporations now that say, you know, we're going to be net zero by X point in time. Um, And I'll borrow the words of someone who works at this French environmental consultancy um, called Carbon4, um, who described those targets, I think, really perfectly by saying, you know, the idea that you can ever be net zero as a corporation is, you know, fundamentally dubious (laughs) Um, and that it only really makes sense at a global level. So that's my other concern with it is aside from the way that the accounting is being done in terms of allowing people to say, you know, we're going to keep emitting very far into the future and and do carbon drawdown um, at a level that isn't actually kind of tenable, um, it also has been trickled down to this kind of corporate level um, where it's used kind of as a smokescreen for sustainability and again creates this kind of veneer of action where there really is none in a way that I worry kind of yeah diffuses some of the momentum and kind of public energy that we really, really need to have behind actually you know acting on the climate crisis.
0: I think a lot of the book is really a critique of the hyper-rationalization of the problem. In an emergency, yes, you have to think rationally to an extent, but you also have to be driven by your fear and your desperate needs to protect and I think that to properly mobilize people around the world you'd, you'd have to in some sense convince them that they were fighting a war with an invisible enemy I mean that's what we did with COVID and and you know it helped
1: yeah I think I think that's absolutely true and I, I had a sort of colleague describe I think very aptly to me you know he asked me is green capitalism just, and I apologize in advance for the word he used, but is green capitalism just an exercise in agnotology, which very jargony, but basically means an exercise in kind of constructing ignorance or constructing indifference.
0: Agnotology.
1: Agnotology, yes. Um, So what does that
0: mean? Constructing ignorance, constructing indifference.
1: Yeah. So basically, I mean, it's kind of exactly what you described there, right? Which is that, to me, one of the biggest problems with green capitalism is, again, it tries to reduce this to... A problem that's purely a technical one. It's one that you know is has market-based and/or kind of bureaucratic responses, and tries to depoliticize the question of how we should respond to the climate crisis. Um, and I think that that is fundamentally demobilizing, and it does disengage people from the problem. It, it makes it something that seems out of the realm of their daily lives and what they can engage with and how they can have impact. Um, and that's you know one of the big concerns I talk about with with carbon pricing, for example. Um, not only is that something that feels quite um, you know detached to most people it's also quite politically unpopular but we'll set that to the side for now but what it says is you know the best way to respond to this problem is through these kind of imagined and totally kind of disembodied market forces based on putting a price on carbon um, and that's a completely different response than the kind of like war planning mindset you were describing there um, and I think that's a much better way to approach the climate crisis right is that you know, we're, we're approaching something that is involves a non-trivial risk of catastrophe, <laughs> is how I would describe it. Right. And anytime that's the case, you know, you should be throwing absolutely everything you can at avoiding a catastrophic outcome. Um, and to me, that means, you know, a lot of kind of <laughs> almost the kind of responses that we saw to COVID, right? Which sometimes might get things wrong, but at least you're trying absolutely everything you can. Some will work, some won't to kind of mitigate that problem. Whereas carbon pricing just kind of yields any kind of control over that to market forces and says, you know, the the guiding principle should be efficiency. We should be focused on responding to this crisis in a way that is most cost and resource efficient. And that's, you know, what happens when you put economists in the driving seat, because to quote William Nordhaus, who's a very famous kind of climate economist, you know, economists eat efficiency for breakfast, lunch and dinner. That's kind of paraphrasing him. But they're obsessed with this idea that the the best way to resolve things has to be through an efficient allocation of kind of costs and and resources. But when it comes to, you know, the risk of something truly catastrophic, I think that's a fundamentally irrational way to approach this kind of problem, right? Why do we care how much something costs if it means that we avoid catastrophe, basically? (laughs)
0: We're now set out on the street, um, (laughs) not because we've been kicked out, but because they are closing the kitchen. You were were about to finish your thought there.
1: Oh, yeah. No, just the last thing to add was that um, to kind of provide a comparison for that, right? And this is maybe an overdone metaphor at this point, but, you know. When, you're, when your house is on fire, you don't try to think about, you know, what is the most cost-effective way I could prevent my house from being burnt to the ground? You just kind of throw everything that you can at it to try and prevent that from happening. And I think that's a, a useful framing to think about what we should be doing, I guess, in this
0: context. So if you could pull the levers of power in any country, <laughs> how would you get the system that we have to do as much good and as little harm as it possibly can, given that it isn't going away?
1: It's a very good question. I think... Um, There are almost two answers to that, right? One is, if I could pull the imagined levers of power of any country, what would that be? Um, It might come as no shock that I think (laughs) the financial system is an incredibly important part of this. And what's interesting is, you know, the vast majority of the global financial system is not only located in the U.S., in Wall Street, and... And in England, but, you know, the laws around corporate governance of those two principalities, so New York State and and England, tend to govern, you know, most international finance and exchange. So if you can change the way that those systems work and those kind of sites of power where all the money is kind of flowing from, then that can have a huge kind of outsized effect across kind of the entire world, across every industry. Um, and so I would immediately go about kind of thinking about how we sort of <laughs> regulate and determine how you know the huge amounts of kind of capital swirling around the global economy are, are allocated and try to find ways to make sure that that's done kind of with social and environmental good in mind as kind of governing principles rather than the way that it's currently oriented um, in terms of things solutions that are working that i think um, kind of offer me some optimism in the near term um i would say that um you know, there are a lot of things to be critical about, I guess, when it comes to what the Biden administration has been doing with the the Inflation Reduction Act, which is kind of a lot of people are heralding it, you know, the first kind of climate um, legislation to come out of the U.S. But I think one of the reasons it's been successful um, and, I you know, that it makes me optimistic is that it very explicitly tries to tie the labor movement and kind of the working class to climate politics through... Green New Deal type strategy of you know investing in green jobs, and I think you know the kind of resurgence of um, the labor movement in the UK. Many of whom, not all, are kind of quite outspoken on the climate crisis and the way that their kind of jobs and industries need to transition and need to adapt, um, so as not to be kind of swept away in the changes that are coming down the line. I think that's a lot of room for hope you know it offers me some kind of sense of optimism particularly because yeah we absolutely need to make our climate politics one that is rooted i guess in the interests and um, perspectives of you know the working class and working people would be my my ideal way to resolve this crisis maybe not (laughs) everyone. not a bad way to
0: resolve it if you ask me but needless to say i think uh things will have to get considerably worse before Mm. it becomes more of an emergency than it certainly appears at the moment as many many cars go by Um, (laughs) (laughs) it's been great to meet you here big joe thanks very much for for coming on the booking club and talking to me about the value of a whale
1: thanks it's been a pleasure and sorry we got kicked out
0: (laughs) it's been great thank you and, as mentioned earlier in the episode, the Booking Club is going live again this year. On the 20th of November, I'll be speaking to Guardian cartoonist Martin Rawson about Rogue's Gallery, a book that he is currently crowdfunding with the independent publisher Unbound, It is a tribute to cartooning talent from around the world. It has a fantastic backstory. Come on down to Yum Yum in Stoke Newington. Find out more about how you can get tickets through Twitter. That's at Booking Club Pod. Listen to the story of the book. Ask Martin some questions and enjoy canopies from Yum Yum's fantastic menu. We look forward to seeing you there.